Going live. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, somebody I talked to last month on a different book. Tonight, we're going to talk about a book he published in 2013. The title of that book is Black Caesar, The Rise and Disappearance of Frank Matthews, Kingpin by Ron Chepasuk. And I talked to Ron last month uh, with Jesus Ruiz and Al, and the title of that book is The Real Mr. Big, How a Colombian Refugee Became the United Kingdom's Most Notorious Cocaine Kingpin, and that was published April 2021. The interview was June 16th. But uh, Mr. Chepasuk is a very prolific author, and some of his books are the following, Superfly, The True Untold Story of Frank Lucas, American Gangster, also Drug Lords, The Rise and Fall of the Cali Cartel, and Sergeant Smack, The Legendary Lives and Times of Ike Atkinson, Kingpin, and His Band of Brothers. Also, The Traffic Counties, Godfathers from Tampa, Florida, The Mafia, The CIA, and The JFK Assassination. Also, Robin Hood of the Hood, The Life and Times of Teddy Rowe, Policy King, and Gangsters of Harlem, The Gritty Underworld of New York City's Most Famous Neighborhood. Uh, Mr. Chepasuk is also a two-time Fulbright Scholar to Bangladesh and Indonesia, and a consultant to the History Channel's Gangland TV series. He's also an executive producer of the popular radio show Crime Beat, which can be found at www.artistfirst forward slash crime beat. And Black Caesar was a 2013 USA Best Book Award winner in the true crime nonfiction category. So I'm delighted to have Mr. Chepasuk back. Ron, are you there? Yes, thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your background or anything, can you talk about what led you to write this very interesting book, which I just finished today, Black Caesar, The Rise and Disappearance of Frank Matthews Kingpin? Yes, um, about 2012 or so, 2011, 2012, <clears throat> I had finished a book called Gangsters of Harlem. And uh, uh, in my research for some of the subjects I profiled in that book, uh, I came across Frank Matthews. And uh, I was really intrigued by him. And I went looking for a book uh, on him and there wasn't any, and I couldn't believe it because he was so powerful and so important in terms of uh, the history of uh, organized crime. And so I said that, uh, that uh, I was gonna work on it. And um, uh, I had done, uh, I, I first did a, um, a documentary and uh, I was a, a co-producer and, uh, and co-director co of the, uh, of the documentary on uh, Frank, Frank Matthews. And that went pretty good. And in that documentary, we only covered the first part of his life. Uh, we didn't cover the part where he disappeared, which is probably the most interesting part of his life. <clears throat> and so um, uh, I um, uh, did additional research. I, I located the, the agents that, that tracked Matthews that tried to find him and talked to a bunch of people that knew him and all that and uh, came up with this book. And uh, I mean, he's kind of an interesting character. You wouldn't, he wasn't from New York. You really start the book in the South. Can you talk about where he came from and his unique kind of background in Durham? Yeah, he was a Southern boy. He was born in 1944, February 13th. And he grew up in Durham, um, a very uh, cosmopolitan uh, city for the, uh, uh, for the South at the time. Um, it had a thriving uh, black community. Uh, Wall Street, uh, it was called, the Black Wall Street. And uh, Matthews grew up. Um, uh, he wasn't poor, but he wasn't rich. And um, uh, he um, uh, seemed to get into trouble when he was young. And uh, he was a born leader. Uh, his nickname was Pee Wee. 
but he was really tough, a tough kid. And uh, at, at age around 16, he got into trouble with a chicken farmer, a white chicken farmer uh, who he slugged. And he ended up in reformatory uh, school, uh, reformatory uh, prison. And uh, after that, he uh, came out and he decided that he was going to leave, uh, that there was really no opportunity in Durham. And he was always quite ambitious. And so uh, he went he went north and he went to uh, Philadelphia for about a year and then ended up in um, in uh, New York City. And he kind of was he started off as like a barber as well. But can you talk yeah. about his real yeah. beginnings? As a yeah, he, uh, he went to barber school. I, I met one guy that, that knew him uh, that had gone to barber school with him. So I confirmed that. And uh, when he went to New York, uh, he worked as a barber. Um, uh, but he also uh, ran the numbers, and uh, uh, he ran the numbers for a, a really big, um, legendary numbers king, a guy named uh, Spanish Ruben Marquez, and uh, they developed a, a, a nice bond. And um, uh, Matthews was always looking for something bigger uh, in his life, and he saw the the rise of the uh, of the uh, heroin trade, and uh, how much money was being made in that. And uh, he really thought that he could break in and do well in that. And uh, that's where uh, uh, Spanish Raymond helped him. And so he was starting to get contacts right from the beginning, right? It seemed like he was really trying to network. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he was very charismatic. Uh, you know, people liked him. Uh, everybody that I, that I, that I talked to uh, really had, didn't have a bad thing to say about him on that. And... Uh, you know, they, they, uh, he just had this personality that really attracted uh, people to him and made him a born leader. And so he was coming up. I mean, I think you wrote in your book, there was a million heroin users in the NYC at that time. So there's a very fertile ground to kind of sell stuff. Can you talk about his relationships? And also he kind of came up, uh, a, a surfaced or really became successful in the time where African-Americans were being uh, much more, integrated into American society. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, he, he went to New York about 1964 or so, and uh, it was a time of a great change. You know, the civil rights were changing, but also the drug trade was changing too. Uh, law enforcement was having great success against the, um, the French Connection, the, the, the legendary French Connection, which uh, in its heyday controlled about 95% of the heroin trade. And the uh, French Connection was sort of a misnomer uh, the, the heroin was processed in, um, in Marseille. That's where the name came from. But it was run by the Italians, uh, the Italian mafia. And uh, the U.S. government was having great success against them. And, um, and that opened up opportunities for, for, for black um, uh, gangsters. Uh, <clears throat> traditionally, they were the people that handled the, the dope for the, uh, for, the, for the Italian mafia. They didn't like to get their hands dirty. You know, they liked the money. And uh, but they didn't want to pedal on the street, so that's where the the black um, gangsters came in, and they they played a very subservient role. But uh, in the late '60s, you saw the rise of uh, a number of of, uh, of uh, interesting and uh, powerful black gangsters, guys like Frank Lucas, for example. Uh, this this was his period as well, and uh, you know him from American Gangster, and uh, Nicky Barnes, uh, Mister Untouchable. Uh, that was another person that um, that uh, got his start in this in this particular period as well. Right. So these they're kind of were in stride. These other kind of black gangsters, and they kind of had tensions with 
the Italian mafiosi. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. They started to, uh, you know, like I said, traditionally they were subservient, but um, uh, they started to to uh, assert their independence from the Italian mafia. Uh, Matthews uh, had a, a, a love hate relationship with the mafia, so to speak. Uh, uh, he, he once said that uh, he once warned the mafia. He said, "You touch any of my men." And I'll come down Mulberry Street and shoot every wop in sight. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yeah, he had a he had a, a tense relationship with uh, uh, with the mafia. But at this point, uh, the uh, the black gangsters were were rising in power, rising in stature, and uh, uh, they, they you know they they had the ability to uh, to stand up to the mafia. And he kind of made his own connections to get to, like get rid of the middlemen and become. A real distributor from the source is that correct? Well, yeah, he uh, uh, well initially he went to the um, to get into the drug trade. We really needed the uh, the um, Italian mafia to give the consent. So Spanish Raymond, who uh, had connections with the Italian mob, arranged a meeting with Matthews uh, with one of the crime families in New York City, and um, uh, uh, he made his pitch, and the mafia turned him down. Uh, it really ticked him off, uh, but uh, there, he thought traditionally there was nothing you can do about it. But uh, he also made a friend called Rolando Gonzalez, who was a Cuban, a really big drug trafficker at the time. And um, uh, Gonzalez um, got into trouble with the law, and he fled to Venezuela, uh, you know, for safety. And before he left, he gave Matthews uh, a couple of kilos of, of heroin. And from that, that was Matthew's first sale. And uh, he made enough money to get established in the drug trade. And he also had a connection in, in Venezuela as well, uh, uh, Rolando Gonzalez. And he, he mined that, re that relationship to develop uh, uh, probably the first big um, international network uh, uh, relating to the heroin trade uh, in history. And they were, I think you said they were like attached to the Corsicans. So the heroin came from Turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The great, the Corsicans, who were who were the the, the power behind the uh, the uh, French connection. Uh, but they're also under under pressure too from law enforcement, and a lot of them fled to uh, Venezuela. And Venezuela became an outpost for the Corsican mafia, and uh, they had the connection to the heroin uh, through the French connection and. Um, Matthews was able to mine that uh, and and make millions of dollars uh, off that connection. And he really wasn't that active for a very long period of time, right? Uh, how do you mean? Active? I mean, well, I just I think that he really started selling drugs. What, sixty eight or sixty seven? Well, yeah, his uh, his lifespan really for for uh, for the drug trade was about sixty eight to seventy uh, seventy two. Right. I mean, it was really it was like meteoric. And remember <laughs> when he fled uh the law he was only 29 years old wow, yeah. so i mean uh, that adds to his legend you know this this uh he's really a kid he was only 29 years old and he was the biggest heroin dealer in in um in america at the time right and you said that he really started kind of an industrial scale he had tons of employees can you talk about his operation and how he managed it yeah he he uh, uh he was very methodic uh one of the uh the uh, law enforcement officers that uh, that uh, chased him said he could have been a CEO of any major corporation in America if he applied his, uh, his skills to uh, legal, uh, legal activities and all that. 
and um, and uh, uh, he developed a, a franchise uh, a system uh, very methodically. He went from one city to the next, and before you know it, he had 21, um, 21 states under his control, which was unheard of because most of the uh, drug tra uh, tra traffickers, uh, drug traffickers, especially the black ones, um, uh, mainly operate out of their neighborhood. You know, they were like, you know, in Queens, in, um, in Harlem, et cetera. And um, uh, so he developed his network. And, uh, and before you know it, uh, he was, you know, the biggest uh, drug trafficker on the East Coast. And so he kind of liked that. I mean, this is a young guy, 23, 24, 25, very young. He kind of lived a flashy, he really became the kingpin, just like you titled him, right? Yeah, yeah. He liked the good life. He liked the, he liked the woman. Uh, he had a lot of he had a lot of girlfriends. Uh, interestingly, he was he was uh, uh, he was married uh, to Barbara Hinton, which was a, a very strange relationship. Uh, and he had he had three kids by her. And um, I met the uh, I interviewed the uh, 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 tutor for his kids. He hired a tutor when he went out to uh, New Jersey, and um, uh, the the uh, tutor liked. Uh, like Matthews, and he said the kids were really well behaved, and he said that uh, that uh, he was they were studying, and he was he was very normal guy. He said he couldn't believe it when he found out uh, after Matthews fled that he was working for <laughs> a big drug dealer. Right, and he had like shell corporations, right? So he had kind of a cover of different operations. Supposedly that was yeah, his yeah, business. yeah. He, he bought a lot of land. Um, uh, uh, the prosecutor. William Callahan, the guy that uh, uh, prosecuted uh, Matthews, uh, said that he bought a lot of land in uh, near Atlanta, and uh, this land eventually became uh, important because it became uh, a large part of the interstate system. On that, and he said that if Matthews would have survived um, uh, law enforcement, he he probably would be a billionaire today with that land. So yeah, he was he was very savvy. I mean that's the whole thing. He's under yeah. the ground, but he seemed to be. Yeah, and he, yeah, and he, uh, he, he went to he went to Las Vegas, which is interesting. Uh, he he was a big boxing fan, um, and uh, he went to Las Vegas, and uh, but it wasn't just for boxing uh, and a good time. He was also using Las Vegas uh, law enforcement leaves to launder his money. He'd go out there with big bags of cash, and he'd lose it, and he'd lose enormous amounts, two hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, you know, people are saying, this guy is crazy. I mean, why is he losing that much money? But it was part of his laundering, uh, uh, laundering of his, of his uh, money that he made from the drug trade. And you said, I think that the casinos would skim like uh, 10, 15 or 16 percent and then give him the rest yeah. back. Or... Right, right. And those were that's actually fairly well known. A lot of those casinos were started by mobsters in different parts of the country to launder. Yeah. Money. Yeah. Right. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the Las Vegas is was founded by the mob. Bugsy Siegel. You know, it was the guy that uh, got everything started with that. Right. So that was, you call it in your book, the skim, right? So the, the yeah. Chicago, yeah. So you know a lot about that too. It's outside of the context of the book. Yeah. But uh, he, so he liked Ali and Frazier and there were other kind of, he seemed to be very friendly with other traffickers instead of fighting with them. Is that, would you find that unusual among drug uh, traffickers? Well, uh, like I said, he was a born leader. And a lot of people looked up to him uh, because of his position in the drug trade, and uh, he he disliked the uh, the Italian mafia a lot, and he wanted to circumvent the Italian uh, mafia, break its grip on the drug trade, and uh, he held two meetings uh, of 
solely uh, black and Hispanic uh, drug kingpins. He had two meetings. And what he tried to do was to organize their own cartel and uh, uh, so that uh, uh, they would be powerful when they, fit, when they uh, faced off against the Italian mafia. But uh, they were too independent. He couldn't get them to, uh, to agree on any kind of rules that uh, could solidify their, their, their relationship. And so it never worked out on that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, he was, like I said, a born leader and um, um, uh, people respected him a lot for that. And he, I mean, I think it was like, there was kind of an interesting nexus in the book because Ali was friends with another kind of guy who was a politician, but also a drug runner. Philadelphia uh, I, Major Coxon. Major Coxon, yeah. That's yeah, right. uh, out of Philadelphia, right, right. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, Major Coxon was one of his uh, main connections, uh, Matthews. Matthews, right. So they were they were definitely networked, and he, um, so he held that meeting. It seems like they were trying to do something like the mafia did, where they held their own. Yeah, like the council, the the, the council they organized about 1933 with Lucky Luciano, and uh, he organized the council, and it was mainly to to um, uh, uh, keep 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 them from infighting amongst themselves, and to make sure they don't get into each other's uh, territory. And uh, it would work. It, the council worked very well, you know, for the mafia. And he thought that that would work well. Uh, something like that would work well for for black and, um, and minority gangsters. And so, you know, it was very interesting. He kind of how did he kind of you said he was low profile, but he came to the attention of the authorities. Right. Yeah, it was really interesting. He, he was operating up until about 1969. I mean, he was you know going going well. And uh, he, he moved into this. Uh, this um, neighborhood uh, in, in Brooklyn and um, uh, into this apartment building. And uh, ironically, in this apartment building uh, was, was a guy named Joe Kowalski, who happened to be a, a, a cop. <laughs> and uh, he, he, you know, cops are always suspicious. And uh, he'd see these, these uh, uh, black guys coming to, uh, into the apartment from, like they had license plates from all over the country. And uh, it looked kind of shady to him, so he started taking the number, taking the the the, uh, the numbers of the license plates, and he, he went and checked them out back at the office and all that. And he found out that they were um, some of the biggest drug dealers in the country. They were coming to, to see Matthews to do business and all that. And uh, he uh, approached his um, superiors with that, and uh, they couldn't believe it. You know, they, uh, they wouldn't believe that a black guy could be that big. You know what I mean? And uh, but anyways, he convinced them uh, to do, uh, you know, surveillance on them. And from that, they built a case uh, on Matthews. And uh, that began the investigation of Matthews. But what's interesting is very early on, um, Matthews discovered that the cops are on to him and he didn't care. <laughs> you know, he talk on the he talk on the phone. And uh, and uh, he tell his guys, he say, watch what you say. He says they're 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 listening to us. The fuzz is listening to us, and all this sort of stuff. And it was quite funny because um, they, they they tracked him, and uh, he he he'd, uh, he'd uh, take his car, and uh, he'd go about ninety miles an hour <laughs> down the road, and they'd have to go follow him. And um, then he slammed the brakes on, and they 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 would have to do that. And uh, he really, literally drove them nuts, but. Eventually, he got careless, uh, and, um, and and Matthews was ahead of his time in a lot of ways, and one of them was, unfortunately, in addiction, too. He was uh, into cocaine, 
And uh, this was before the big cocaine epidemic back uh, started in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, uh, he, I think he became addicted to, to, to uh, cocaine and it affected his judgment. And he did a lot of irrational things. And eventually uh, it got him he got him into trouble with the law. And that's why he had to flee. So he ended up fleeing. One of the interesting aspects of the book was his entry into this area of uh, Tote Hill. Can you talk about that and what was happening around there? And why he wasn't? I, never, I was never able to figure out why he wanted to go to uh, Tote Hill. Um, I think that he, he was thinking about getting out of the drug trade. He was He was always planning ahead. And I think that he was thinking about uh, trying to live a legitimate life, you know, with his, you could tell that with his business investments, the way he treated his children. And uh, so he went out and uh, he left uh, the apartment in Brooklyn and, uh, and bought this house. It was a really nice, it was like $200,000 at the time. Of course, this was like the early seventies and incredibly um, uh, across the street, uh, we're living uh, two of the, uh, two of the biggest gangsters, uh, the family of Three Fingers Brown and Paul Castellano, who became eventually became leader of the Gambino crime family and the guy that John Gotti knocked off to uh, to become leader of that. And uh, it was it was incredible. And the um, and Castellano and um, Brown found out who's living across from them. And uh, they couldn't believe this guy, uh, the, the huevos this guy had, <laughs> you know, to move across the across the lane. And uh, he would drive him nuts. He'd have parties at night, and um, and uh, he'd make all kinds of noise and all that. And and I visited the street, and it was really interesting because right across the street from them. And uh, and I, I find it hard to believe that it was just a, a coincidence that he that he bought the house. I think he was doing that to rub it into the mafia on that. But anyway, he bought the lot too and built had his belt house specially built right yeah oh yeah yeah he had uh, everything built you know the, the the sinks were lined um with gold and all that sort of thing you know he was very very opulent and um and uh it got so bad with the mob with the, the mob and um the, the 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 cops uh had the the mob wire too and they heard them that they were planning to kill matthews because they he was going to become such a nuisance to them on that but he he uh fortunately for matthews he left uh, before that could happen. If I he, remember he had, correctly, he had, to leave. he had to leave. He fled. Right. Well, if I remember correctly, Castellano never left his house. He, everybody did business in his his mansion there, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, he, yeah. And uh, of course, uh, you know, that bothered him too because he's always around the house, right? right. And he had to be. And, and Matthews was the only black person living in that neighborhood. And right. uh, and I checked it out today. They're like a million dollar houses. So it's really exclusive neighborhood on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you wrote in your book is like the highest bluff close to the ocean, close to the Atlantic Ocean from Florida to Maine or something. It's yeah, very yeah, easy. yeah. I think you also wrote that that was the scene for the entry introductory scene in The Godfather, right? Yeah, or, I forgot about. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it had something to do with the Godfather film, right, as well. Yeah, I think they filmed the that entry scene with the Godfather yeah. meeting people was done yeah. in Toad Hill in one of the yeah. And this was only this is only a you know, maybe a year after Matthews fled, you know, uh, right, so Matthews right. fled. It was like what uh, Godfather's what, 74, 75? Yeah, I think you're right. So, and yeah. I think there yeah. were other mob families up there too, or supposedly connected families. I don't remember. Yeah. But it is a fascinating story. So he was a, definitely an up and comer, ambitious, 
moved into Tote Hill, had a mansion, wives, girlfriend, and wife, kids. And uh, he, what happened next? Well, uh, eventually, um, uh, they built a case against him. Uh, they had enough uh, information, and they're thinking about uh, charging him with drug trafficking. And so, in the um, in the uh, just Christmas time of 1972, uh, Matthews was, uh, uh, you know, planning. He was really he, he like he had planned. Uh, an escape. He had something, something in the works, but he, he wanted, he was a big, big sports fan and he was going to the, uh, the uh, Super Bowl in, uh, in Los Angeles that year. And it was uh, the Redskins and uh, Miami, you know, that famous um, uh, 14 and 0 team, you know, the undefeated team and all that. And so he went out to Las Vegas and they were tracking him and they were debating whether or not to, to arrest him. And but they got nervous because they thought that maybe he was trying to, to flee because they knew that he was putting money away. And um, I talked to one of the agents. He told me that uh, that uh, for about 20 months or so, uh, he, uh, he'd been putting like a million dollars away uh, and uh, uh, in the banks, bank accounts. So one million a month for 20 yeah, months. Yeah, one million and about 20 months. So they figured out, you know, $20 million. That's where that $20 million came from, that he fled with $20 million on that. And so he went to, um, he went to Las Vegas. And they were deciding. So they decided they're going to go ahead. They arrested him. So they arrested him, and uh, uh, he was uh, charged with a five million dollar bond. It, it was the biggest bond in uh, in U.S. history. Incredible. And that brought Matthews to the attention of everybody. You know, the the, the press. Right. So uh, his bail bond was five million dollars. Yeah, yeah five million dollars. But he managed to get it down to two two point five million. Right. And uh, he was extradited uh, to New York. And so he went into bond again. And could you believe this? It was $350,000, which was chump change for Matthews. I mean, it was like, you know, a pocket full of uh, money for us. And uh, and uh, the, the cops are outraged. And I asked one of the cops, I said, do you think there was any kind of corruption involved? And they said, no, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't prove anything. And they didn't think, they just thought the, <laughs> the judge had a bad day. So anyways, Matthews was out for like six months uh, and uh, he was getting his affairs together and everything. And uh, and he went to the court uh, and uh, uh, he talked, he uh, went with his uh, girlfriend, uh, uh, Brown, and uh, they walked out of the uh, courthouse and uh, that was it. He uh, he disappeared. And, uh, he was on the run. It was July second, nineteen seventy three, and uh, and uh, he's been on the run ever since. It's been watched uh, 40, 48 years. Forty eight years. I mean, do you? And they were like trying to get him at like other Ali, uh, oh. Frazier fights, just trying to see where they could find uh, him. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, it, it's still to this day, I think, the biggest DEA investigation in history. Not many people realize that. Number two, they, they they put a reward on him, uh, a reward of $20,000, which doesn't sound like much. And it wasn't much either because I talked to the DEA guys and they agreed it wasn't very much. But the only other guy they ever put it on was John Dillinger. And that was back in 1933. Then they had a task force of six cops that did nothing but try to track this guy. And uh, and so, it, you know, it was a, 
uh, investigation that just went on from year to year. And um, I, I talked to the, the four, the four um, uh, agents that, uh, that were involved with it. There were two DA guys, and then there were two uh, marshals. After a year, the DA transferred the case uh, to the marshals, and then the marshals picked it up. But they really tried hard. I mean, they did everything. They went everywhere. And, and some, of the, some of the stories were just crazy. Uh, they got a word uh, from this uh, girlfriend uh, that she knew for sure Matthews was, was going to Houston. And they asked her why, and she said a heart transplant. <laughs> and uh, it, didn't, it, it didn't sound like uh, making much sense, but, you know, Matthews had that, uh, he had a palpitating heart, too, which I found out from, from Callahan, and they found out later on that then. And, um, and he had cocaine. He was using cocaine, right, uh, uh, a lot. And so, you know, it made sort of sense, but they had to check it out. They had to check out every rumor. And so they went out there, and they spent like three days out there in Houston, at this big uh, medical facility, and then he never showed up. All right? Didn't you say there were sightings in Durham, and people were calling you to see what? There were sightings in fifty in fifty countries. There were sightings in fifty countries, and uh, the last time I I um, I talked with um, uh, the DEA uh, was like about about the, when the book came out, about two thousand fourteen, and uh, they're still getting sightings. They had a guy that came into Charlotte that resembled Ma uh, Matthews a lot, same age, same build. And uh, they um, uh, checked him out and he wasn't, uh, he wasn't Matthews. And he would have been, when you published the book originally, he would, I think he was 68 at he's that time. Yeah, he's 77 today. So he'd be 77. Do you think he's still alive? No, I think he's dead. What do you think happened to him? Uh, well, there's, there's, you know, if I knew, I'd, I'd be a rich man. When I, or you're speculating. But, uh, I, could you speculate, speculating. I could speculate about it on that then. Um, you know, well, when um, he got he got a bunch of, um, of uh, Corsicans uh, arrested in Venezuela and uh, because he spoke on the wire and he, he gave up this, this drug deal that was going down. And uh, so that, you know, that pissed off uh, the um, uh, Corsicans. And if you left the country, you know, he'd be in trouble. Uh, and they might, have, they might have killed him for revenge. Uh, he might have been killed for the money, right? He had all this money. And if he was out of, he was out of the country, he was out of his, out of his hood, right? He was right. Um, in very strange waters. And um, he'd be very susceptible uh, to that. And then, um, um, you know, he, he, uh, he, he had that cocaine uh, problem. And uh, uh, he had a health... I know he had a health problem because uh, when I was in Durham, uh, I saw a bunch of his uh, homeboys, guys that guys that uh, that uh, that knew him and all that, and they were all sick, you know, and they were like on their last legs and everything. And they're only this time was what in their sixties, on that. So I figured that that Matthews, uh, uh, you know, might have had the same fate. Just and, from rough living, is that it? Yeah, COVID? yeah, right, rough living and uh, and right and and drug and drug problems drug problem. on that. So I think that. That could be a possibility, and then of course, you know the uh, uh, the the, um, the CIA may have had something to do with it, because the case that they built the, the prosecutors here after Matthews fled, which involved his remaining uh, uh, gang, right, and plus the Venezuela connection, they had those people in Venezuela. The CIA came in and told uh, the prosecutor that uh, he had to cut off the Venezuelan part of his uh, investigation. And uh, he said, why? 
he said, I got a strong case. And he said, because we said so. And the federal government, uh, uh, you know, would, would, would rule in this case. And so uh, he had to cut off the Venezuelan part. And we never really knew what happened um, uh, on that part because most of those guys, there was like 18 of them that were arrested. It was a big, a big, um, big drug case. And uh, about, uh, they were, they were, they were released. Right. And I think, I mean, the kind of money that was around was very substantial. I think that case you said it was 50 pounds of heroin with massive street value. I mean, you, didn't you say he sold a hundred million dollars worth of drugs in four years or something like that? Or was it more than that? Well, they estimated, there's no way of knowing, you know, I, I hate those figures. You always say, yeah, he sold this much and he, you know, this much was, was transported and all that. It, you know, it's, it's a legal trade, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to document. You can't really do it. You can just estimate, you know, on that. And, um, but, um, uh, you know, one year the, they estimated that he made like $50 million, which doesn't seem like a lot today, today, comparatively speaking, but this was back in, back in the, um, uh, early seventies. Right. And he, he's fled with 20 million and that's, that's estimated to be about 90 million today in today's money. So you figure that, right. It'd be like maybe 200 million, uh, in a year, which is a lot of money. It's an incredible sum. And I think you said yeah. the IRS hit him with a tax bill for like seven, yeah, million. seven million, seven million, um, uh, dollars on that. He, he, he claimed he only had like $250,000 in, uh, in income, but it was millions and, uh, they're able they thought they were able to prove it, and so they, they hit him with a with a, a tax lien on that. And his operation, I think you said that in the book, like forty or fifty people were just hired per day to wrap the heroin, right? Or just organize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, uh, yeah, two processing labs. Um, uh, the OK Corral, he called one, which kind of kind of cute, and then the Ponderosa. Of course, that's probably a takeoff on uh, Bonanza. You know, the, the real famous show back in the sixties on that and uh he had woman and you know this the movie uh the movies where they have the the naked girls you know mm. you know uh packing the, the the cocaine and all that uh that's what he had and that's probably where it came from as well i mean the movie uh, idea for it on that and um when when they busted um uh, uh one lab they found ten thousand glassine envelopes which were used for packing the heroin right little packs of them and they're worth like $25 a piece. Wow. So you figure that, I mean, that, that, that was how much money he was, he was handling on that. Just handling tons of money. Yeah. Had trouble laundering. It gave money away. Yeah. And well, yeah, he had, he had, uh, I talked to, um, uh, to one guy and, uh, he, he owed like, he owed Matthews like $40,000 and every time every, you know, he'd have it in his trunk and he was going to give it to Matthews. And uh, every time you see Matthews, uh, he'd mentioned it, Matthew say, "Well, you know, next time, next time," and then finally, about the third or fourth time, you know, he did this. And Matthew's got really ticked off, and he said, "He said, he said, forty thousand. He said, you keep it," <laughs> and he walked. He walked away from uh, from the guy. You know, forty thousand dollars. He said, "You keep it." Right. I know it's incredible. Yeah. And uh, didn't you say that this or this book got optioned as a f uh, screenplay or a film? Yeah, uh, it's what been optioned for um, for oh. film production. Right. Gotcha. What that. year did, was that option? Do you know, or do you recall? About four years ago. And so they're still kind of working. Yeah, on. we're moving. You know, we're moving along. It's uh, probably hope to have something announced by the end of the year on this. Oh, one. great! Oh, congratulations! That, this yeah. will make an excellent movie. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, you got a movie on uh, uh, Bumpy Johnson. You got a movie on 
Frank Lucas. Uh, they're making a movie on uh, Nikki Barnes, and uh, you have the guy. The, I call him the Al Capone of black organized crime, right? And you have nothing on him. So you know, it's about time. And uh, the stories you can see is one of the most fascinating uh, stories. Very much, yeah. I mean, that somebody got out and got away. Usually, you just hear of them getting busted and thrown in jail. I so can call. Very... I can call. I can count the number of guys that got away with it on one hand, and they were nearly as big as uh, Frank Matthews. So if he got away with it, but the, the, the irony is that is that if he came back today, or he just showed, I say, showed up in, in a police station and said, here I am, uh, I don't think they could do anything to him. Uh, first of all, the, the records of the case that uh, when they tried all of his subordinates in 75, um, I tried to find them, they were, they were gone, they disappeared. And there's no records. And, uh, you know, this guy came back, he'd be an unbelievable folk hero and it would be really hard. And there's witnesses are all dead and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think the the the, uh, the um, uh, authorities would have the stomach, you know, to, to bring to him. To do it, him. right. Right. And his yeah. girlfriend, Cheryl Hinton, uh, I, I mean, Cheryl Brown, um, uh, if she walked in to a police station, they they just uh, uh, say, well, we, we want to talk to you, but you can go home. They have nothing on her, you know what I mean? And so the fact that she disappeared, and that's what makes this case so fascinating. Not only he disappeared, but the woman who it is believed he fled with also disappeared. And in both cases, there's been absolutely nothing. No fingerprints, no photographs, no snitches, nothing. Nothing. It's incredible. It really is. that There's somebody, you know, somebody turns himself back in or they yeah, mix I mean, up. You, know, and you talked about uh, Whitey... Bolger, right? Yeah, well, the uh, Bolger, we knew we knew Bolger was uh, was around because he, he was going back to Boston. People saw him, and uh, they, they have a picture of him in 1998 in Europe. So they knew the guy was alive. And Hoffa is the other famous case, right? There's always talking about Hoffa, the disappearance. You know, they know what happened to him. The mafia knocked him off. And uh, so, but Matthews, no one's got a clue. And I remember sitting in um in in the, the office of one of the marshals, um, uh, Bill Pizzi. And uh, he, he's, he, he confided to me, he said, you know, I, I remember sitting there with these, with these boxes of stuff. He said, I had boxes and boxes. And it was like 10 years after we had, we had investigated Matthews. And at, at the end of the day, we had nothing. <laughs> we had absolutely oh, nothing. Crazy. You know what I mean? There was absolutely nothing right. solid that you could, you could make. And, it, and none, of, none of his uh, homeboys talked either. Nobody would talk. Uh, one of the... Um, uh, marshals that took over the case, this is like 25 years later, thought she'd go back to the original uh, uh, gang and interview them, you know, the ones that were alive. And uh, none of them would talk. This was like years later. None of them had anything to offer her on that, which was just amazing. It's a really an incredible story. I really like to read this, but I really love to read the book in which I finished. And it's great to talk with you again. Where's the best place to pe for people to buy the book? Well, they could go to Amazon, of course, would probably be the best uh, uh, book. They could order it to their, to their bookstore. Barnes & Noble is another possibility. And it's doing quite well. Uh, it's still s selling quite well. It's I'm still surprised. selling. That's great. Yeah, and we hope when it, once the film comes out that it's going gonna, it's gonna to really take off. Yeah, and where's the best place? Do you have social media? If people want to reach out to you, how can they contact yeah, you? Yeah, they, they, uh, they can try me on Facebook. Uh, they can connect to me. Uh, mention that I was on this show. Because I get a lot of them, and there's a lot of bogus ones, as you know, um, trying to make connections and all that. So, uh, and I'll connect. And uh, I'm um, 
I got a, I got a website, uh, ronchepsick.com. And uh, I got my radio show, too. Right. Uh, you can tune in to listen. It's Crime Beat, right? So yeah, it's Crime, crime Beat, beat right. artist first forward slash Crime Beat. And your yeah, last name is HDM at the end, po uh, period HDM. HDM, okay, sorry. Okay. And okay. then your last name is spelled C H E P E S I U K. Right. And the title of the book, again, was Black Caesar The Rise and Disappearance of Frank Matthews Kingpin, published 2013. Ron Chepasek, thank you so much. Thank you right. for having me on. All right, yeah, great. All right.